It's a great privilege to be with you this morning to share the gospel through the story of your United Methodist Children's Home. Since 1890, we've been serving children and youth who, through no fault of their own, are unable to live with their parents. We accomplish our mission to vulnerable and orphaned children through group homes, higher education homes, and foster care, as well as family preservation and adoption services. And this year, our agency is on pace to touch over 1,700 lives through the various services we provide in Alabama and Florida. I want to take just a few moments this morning to make you aware of two important developments regarding our ministry. You may have heard in the news or on social media that we have recently changed our doing business as name in Alabama to Embrace Alabama Kids. Our legal name is still the United Methodist Children's Home and we are still very connected to the United Methodist Church. But after a period of consultation with our supporting churches, clergy, and donors, we came to realize that the name United Methodist Children's Home no longer accurately described the breadth of our organization's services to vulnerable children and families, that we had outgrown our name, if you will. And so we are now known in Alabama as Embrace Alabama Kids, a ministry of UMCH. I also want to make you aware that we have recently made a nearly $3 million investment in your community through the construction of our new Baby's First Home at 3166 Schillinger Road. We have constructed a 10,000 square foot facility that serves 10 teenage mothers and their 10 children. Through our Baby's First program, our staff mentors the girls, teaches them how to parent, and helps them get an education and job skills so they can break the cycle of poverty and entrance into the foster care system. It's one of only two facilities in Alabama that provides residential group care for pregnant teens and young mothers. So we're meeting a tremendous need for our state here in Mobile. I'd like to invite all of you to our building dedication on September 28th at 11 a.m. where Bishop Graves will be in attendance. More details on the building dedication will be provided closer to the date through the church. I was delighted to hear that you are in the midst of a Christmas in July sermon series to highlight the importance of the Christmas season for all seasons. Christmas is certainly an important season in the life of our agency. Much of the support that we've received over the years to care for vulnerable children has come through our annual offering known as the White Christmas Offering. Since the 1930s, United Methodist churches across Alabama, both in the Alabama-West Florida and North Alabama conferences, have been coming together at Christmas to make a powerful statement about the church's role in caring for orphaned and vulnerable children raising tens of millions of dollars during that time. And I can't think of a more theologically appropriate season for our United Methodist churches to do so. Our scripture this morning, our gospel lesson, describes the process of Joseph accepting Jesus as his son. In this story, 
we see a good man wrestling with a decision about his responsibility for a child that is not biologically his own. We see a man wrestling with a decision that unbeknownst to him at the time would have eternal impact. This morning, I'd like for us to look deeply into the story and see what it might communicate to us regarding the church's role in caring for vulnerable children today. I want to start by outlining something about the Christmas story that is very easy for us to gloss over 2,000 plus years later. Mary was found to be pregnant outside of marriage, period. I say period because theological explanations of how that pregnancy came to pass probably didn't matter much at the time in the small village of Nazareth. She was not forgiven or excused in those days because of what we believe about Jesus today. Today, we all know how the story ends. We all know that Mary and Jesus will be vindicated many years later on the first Easter Sunday. But make no mistake, they were in real danger at the time. Jesus was clearly conceived outside of marriage, and first century Palestine was an unforgiving place for unwed mothers and their children. Again, the story reveals a good man wrestling with a decision about his responsibility for a child that is not biologically his own. Joseph is wrestling with this decision because he's a righteous man and the stakes are high. But it's not a slam dunk decision. Either way, there is a really tough row to hoe for someone. For all he knows at the time, by taking Mary as his wife, he will be forever tied to a shameful pregnancy and one that he was not responsible for or legally bound to. And so he considers a way that he can save face, that both of them can save face. He considers breaking off the engagement. The scriptures say dismissing Mary quietly. Some say divorcing her quietly and sending her away. But Joseph is inconvenienced in this situation by his own sense of compassion and ethics. He knew that Mary's prospects for marriage were very slim outside of him and that she stood in real danger of forever being labeled as an adulteress. And he knew that Mary's child stood in real danger of never being allowed to fully participate in Jewish religious life as a result. Deuteronomy 23.2 states, No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Without Joseph, Mary and her unborn child would be ripe for the picking among those that seem to be there in every society preying on the most vulnerable. Make no mistake, Mary and Jesus' future depended on Joseph's decision about how he would respond to a child that was not biologically his own. What is a good man to do? I want to stop and draw a parallel for you today as it pertains to vulnerable and orphaned children in Alabama. 
Whether we realize it or not, our state is making the decision to dismiss or divorce a large number of foster children quietly. Quite simply, Alabama's financial commitment to foster children has not kept pace with the need to serve these children. Consider that our leadership team visited a few years ago with our sister United Methodist Children's Home of the South Georgia Conference in Macon, Georgia, where Bishop Bryan leads. Consider that the state of Georgia pays their home at a rate of $108 per day per child in their care. Meanwhile, the state of Alabama only reimburses our home at a rate of $11.38 per day per child. If you go away on vacation in the next week, you won't be able to board your pet for $11.38 per day. This shifts the majority of the financial burden for caring for these children to our agency, which we are willing and able to do with the help of our United Methodist churches. So what's the problem? The problem is that this quiet dismissing or divorcing has serious implications beyond just our agency's bottom line. These days, there's a huge push from the federal government to economically discourage states from utilizing group homes like the one we have here in Mobile and use foster families instead. And while we agree that in an ideal situation, foster families should be the first option for placing children there's a problem with this strategy. There aren't nearly enough foster families for all of Alabama's foster children, which means that some children are being left in dangerous circumstances when they would be better off with an agency like us. But the greater issue is that there never has been, nor will there ever be, enough foster families for the teenage foster population. Rare and precious is the foster family that will take in a teenager. So if you're a teenager that has not been reunified with your family or adopted by another family, chances are a group home is your only other option. And without reasonable reimbursement to properly care for these young people, many group homes around our state, especially those that aren't denominationally affiliated like we are, have had to close their doors. One recently here in Mobile, St. Mary's, the Catholic home. Where will these kids go? What's going to happen to them? The same forces of darkness that were waiting in the shadows for a pregnant teenage girl in first century Palestine are there waiting for them. Human traffickers, drug traffickers, and gangs. These kids are being dismissed quietly. But returning to the text, we do find hope because we see Joseph has a dream. An angel of the Lord appears and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We all need to pay close attention to something that often gets overlooked in this familiar passage. The tendency when we read this familiar story is to focus on the details of how Jesus was conceived and miss something very important the angel is communicating. 
Notice how the angel addresses Joseph. Joseph, son of David. That's vitally important. The angel is essentially saying, Joseph, remember who you are. You are a descendant of David, a man after God's own heart. The descendant of a man with great courage, who overcame much, loved much, was forgiven much. Remember Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite? How would a descendant of David, the greatest king in Israel's history, respond to the situation? In our archives room in Montgomery, leather-bound ledgers contain the names of the oldest recorded residents in our agency's history, dating back to September of 1890, when Charles Ebsworth Moore was the first orphan admitted to the Alabama Methodist Orphanage. And the first entry of one particular ledger dates back to October 17, 1907, when a 10-year-old girl named Lucille came into the home's care. Now, the record suggests that Lucille's family had moved from Austin, Texas, to Limestone County in North Alabama. Her mother had died, and her father, Benjamin, needing work and without any extended family support to help care for Lucille, placed her with our home. He agreed to pay $5 per month for her care. The record indicates that she was reunited with her dad almost a year later on October 4th, 1908. Now there are a lot of details that we don't know about Lucille and Benjamin, but I love to think about their story and read that entry from time to time for several reasons. Foremost, I love imagining the reunion between Lucille and Benjamin a year later and the fulfillment of a promise made by a father to a daughter. It reminds me of God's promise to us in John 14, 3, when Christ said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Lucille and Benjamin remind all of us that we too have great reunions in our future. But I also love this story because it reminds all of us of who we are. It reminds us of who we are. It makes me extremely proud to be numbered among the people called Methodists. Our Wesleyan heritage of sharing the love of Christ by meeting real social needs is abundantly clear in this story. When our country's great needs have overwhelmed society's capacity to deal with them, the United Methodist Church has always been there in some form, using our powerful connection to punch holes in the world's darkness. Joseph, son of David, I'd like to think that Joseph went over and over those words in his mind in the hours and even perhaps days that followed his dream. And I'd also like to think that perhaps, just perhaps, I'm taking some liberty here, but that perhaps he thought back to a very well-known story in the first book of Samuel as he wrestled with his decision about Mary and her child. You see, as a descendant of David, Joseph would have been well-versed in the story of David's anointing in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You remember that story. I certainly do. It's one of the first stories I remember 
from Vacation Bible School, Samuel receives a, receives a word from the Lord to go to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the new king, even though Saul sits on the throne. And Jesse presents the oldest and most kingly looking of his sons first, and Samuel was impressed with the appearance and the stature of Jesse's oldest. But the Lord rebukes Samuel. You remember his words? Do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel takes the Lord's words to heart and rejects all of the sons that Jesse presents. He even has to ask, are these all the sons that you have? Only David was left, the youngest, the least of his brothers, not even initially considered as king material by his dad. David is summoned from tending sheep in the fields. Samuel anoints him, and David eventually becomes the greatest king in Israel's history. Fast forward many years later, and I'd like to think that perhaps, just perhaps, God's words to Samuel were running through Joseph's mind in a different form as he wrestled with this decision about Mary and her child. Joseph, son of David, do not consider the circumstances of his birth. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I can never hear the story of David's anointing without thinking of one of our children from years ago, Aaron. Aaron's story is one of the first stories I heard about when I came to lead our children's home. Aaron lived in our Tuscaloosa group home for about four years before it became a higher education home as it is for our youth today. And when Aaron was just a toddler, his parents left him at home alone for several days while they went away on a drug and alcohol binge. He was left alone in the home with a dog, a large, aggressive dog. Both Aaron and the dog grew hungry, and the dog attacked Aaron's sole diaper. As a result of that incident, Aaron was left permanently disfigured and will never be able to father children biologically. It's the first story I heard upon coming to our children's home. And after I heard that story, my immediate internal response came in the form of some pretty difficult questions, to be honest with you. Questions like, how do you believe in God after something like that happens to you? More specifically, how do you believe in the concept of a loving Heavenly Father when your earthly father neglects you like that? How do you grow to be a person of faith? I have a confession to make. I tried unsuccessfully to answer those questions for several months through mere theological ponderings. It was only months later when I saw the overwhelming generosity of our churches through my first quite Christmas campaign that I had my answer. And the answer is pretty simple. It's you. You. People like you are how a child like Aaron can come to believe in a loving Heavenly Father that wants nothing but the best for him. 
through your gifts to our agency, people like you enable us to offer Christ to children like Aaron through a loving Christian home where they've got hope for a better tomorrow. Joseph, son of David, remember who you are. And thanks be to God, Joseph does just that. He accepts responsibility for Jesus as his son, even though he had no legal obligation to do so. The Christmas miracle that God set in motion meets its first guardians through a couple willing to bear a shame and responsibility that wasn't theirs to bear. And thanks be to God, their willingness to bear that responsibility and shame allows us to lay claim to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christmas story means different things to different people, but at its most basic level, it teaches us what taking responsibility for vulnerable children can mean to the world. It teaches us that there is no other cause we can support that is more central to who we are as the church than caring for vulnerable and orphan children. And so I'll leave you this morning with a few questions. Will you, like Joseph, take responsibility for our children even though you have no legal obligation to do so? Will you accept our children, children like Lucille and Aaron, just as Joseph accepted Jesus, even though you had no part in the misfortunes and hardships of their lives? Will you take them as your own to name and protect? I pray that you will. I close by leaving you with the words from the late Frank Pittman, an Alabama-grown physician and noted author. Pittman once wrote, as I've lived my life as a man, I've learned the secrets of happiness. I pass them on to my kids and I pass them on to you. Forgive your parents, join the team, find some work and play to do, get a partner to do it with, keep it equal, and raise children wherever you find them. Raise children wherever you find them. It's what a poor couple in Nazareth did over 2,000 years ago, and it forever changed the course of human history. It's what the United Methodist Children's Home, now Embrace Alabama Kids, has been doing for 131 years. I hope you'll join us in the coming years in raising children wherever we find them. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.